Podcast One and Forbes present Mentoring Moments with Denise Rastari, a show where women you may never meet will become your mentors. Join Denise in her New York City apartment and tap into her conversations with successful women who are dropping the V-bombs. That's right, they're getting vulnerable. Now, here's your host, Denise Rastari. So this is a really special day and welcome back to my apartment in New York City and like I'm really through the roof excited, <laughs> through the roof excited because today with me is Maggie Doyne and it all started on a night in 2012 and I was sitting on my sofa and I get this tweet that is from Tammy Tibbetts, who has been on the podcast before. She's the founder of She's the First. We provide scholarships for girls in the developing world so they can be the first in their families to graduate from high school. And Tammy tweets, at Denise Rastari, you need to immerse yourself in at Maggie Doyne. <laughs> well, you know, that was great. And I I, but I don't know why. I didn't say I'll do it tomorrow. I didn't say that's great. I'll make a note. I'll put it on my to-do list. For whatever reason, I did it then. And I started to Google and I Googled Maggie Doyne and I saw these articles about this 19-year-old who lived in New Jersey, found her way to Nepal and went on a gap year. And then she became the legal guardian to, at that time, it was about 25, 30 kids who were orphaned. She built a, a home for the children called Coppola Valley. And she became the legal guardian to these kids. And the story went on. And with the local community, she built a primary school for hundreds of kids in the local community. And I'm like, wow. But then the real wow happened when I stumbled on this video from the Do Lectures. And it's like this 30-minute video, and it's of Maggie. And I think, you know, I'm going to watch it for just a couple minutes. I just want to see who Maggie is. Well, 30 minutes later, I finished the video, and I have had gone through every emotion I could possibly have gone through in that video, from crying to laughing, back to crying, back to laughing. And I took this breath, and I said to Lewis, my husband, you have to watch this video. You just have to watch this video. And I thought if Lewis got through three minutes of it, that would be a good thing. 30 minutes later, he has the same look on his face that I had on mine of like, holy cow, this is amazing. This girl is amazing. So then I immediately sent an email to Randall Lane, who's the editor of Forbes magazine, and he's also, he was launching the first ever Forbes 400 um, Philanthropy Summit. And the people in the, the room that day of this summit would be Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Melinda Gates, Oprah Winfrey. And I said something to the effect to Randall of, you have to have this girl come to the, come to the philanthropy summit. Well, fast forward to a few weeks later, maybe months, when the summit actually happens, we're at the New York City Public Library. And 26-year-old Maggie Doyne is about to speak. And she's trembling. She's a little nervous, maybe more than a little nervous. <laughs> she's laughing here with me. She was following Bon Jovi. And she gets up on stage. And there is this young woman who tells a story that's from her heart. Not looking down at anything, but from her heart. And six minutes later, the entire room, led by Warren Buffett, <laughs> is standing up. There were two standing ovations that day. 
not for Oprah, not for Melinda Gates, not for Bill Gates. The standing ovations went to Warren Buffett and Maggie Doyne. That was a life changer for me on so many levels, professionally to say, these are the women's stories we want to hear. It's great that we hear from the women who have been doing great things, and that's great. But these are the stories that really inspire people to get up and do something. And that's why I am excited, like through the roof, that Maggie again is here today. Now, one thing I left out in all of this is Maggie came here from Nepal. And the same thing when she did the philanthropy summit, she traveled halfway around the world to be there for the philanthropy summit. And Maggie, once again, is here visiting from Nepal and said, when I said, will you do a podcast with me? Immediately, she said, yes, let's make the date. Okay, so I want you to hear my conversation with Maggie today from start to finish without any interruptions. And that's exactly what we're going to do in a minute. But first, a shout out to TrueCar to thank them for supporting Mentoring Moments. So a listener who knows me well asked me how I feel about doing the TrueCar ads. And I said, honestly, at first I thought, mm, I don't know how I'm going to do this genuinely. You know, I'm all about being genuine. You know, I haven't bought a car in like 10 years. But then I downloaded the TrueCar app to look for a car for my daughter. I thought it was really cool. And I started talking about that on the show because it was real. And then the funny thing happened. People started talking to me about their True Car experiences and how much they love working with True Car. And then I realized, you know, I can actually help people by sharing what I've learned about True Car. So now it really became very genuine. So today, here are my top three things I'm going to share about True Car. Number one, you get what you expect. So there's no empty, fluffy promises. When you search for a vehicle, they have a real pricing on actual inventory. That means if you look up a car that you want, they will physically have it on their lots for the price that they're showing. That this is a pricing that's offered from a true car certified dealer. And what's a true car certified dealer, you might ask? Well, they're a network a curated network of dealers who are committed to offering you a competitive market price. And there are like over 13,000 of these true car certified dealers around the country. So it's easy to find one that's near you. Okay. The second thing with the true car pricing curve, which I think is another cool factor, you can see what other people in your area paid for the same car you're looking for. So, you know, you're getting a fair price. True car users save an average of over $3,000 off of the MSRP. And the third point is over 3 million cars have been sold to true car users by the true car certified dealer network. So here's the deal. When you're ready to buy, visit true car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Hey, everybody, I'm Heather Dubrow. And I'm Dr. Terry Dubrow. Every Friday, check out my podcast, Heather Dubrow's World. We also have a brand new show, The Dr. and Mrs. Guinea Pig Show, every Tuesday. So don't forget iTunes and Podcast One. Tune in to Dr. and Mrs. Guinea Pig on Tuesdays and Heather Dubrow's World every Friday. Commercial real estate challenges? For 160 years, companies around the world have trusted Savills for expert guidance and perfect workspace solutions. See what Savills can do for you at Savills.us. This is Mentoring Moments with Denise Rostari. Okay, so I am so ready. Let's get into my conversation with Maggie Doyne. 
So I am so thrilled, Maggie, that you're here. You know that I just love you. I love you so much. And to add to the story, not only did it change my life, but a couple years ago, my daughter went to Nepal with Maggie for five months, and it was a life changer for Allie. So thank you for that. Thank you. And now I just want to get into your story that I think, let's start from the beginning, because I just touched on you were 19. Let's just go through the how you got there. How did you get to Nepal? Um, well, I think my story really began, um, like you said, I, I grew up in New Jersey and I was really, if you can picture her, I was a very suburban New Jersey teenager, um, doing what all kids my age from my demographic do. We're very much groomed and bred to go on to college. Um, so I was the editor-in-chief of my yearbook. I was playing three sports. I was stocking up my college resume um, with absolutely every activity under the sun, all with the intention of going on to the best school possible so I could get on the most successful track so that I could yada, 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 all the things that I think our society and our culture um, sort of defines as success. And then at the very last moment, I mean, after the SATs and the AP tests were done, I just woke up one day and the best way that I can describe it is that feeling in my gut, um, just a feeling in my stomach that I wasn't ready. I wasn't, I had no idea who I was on the inside and who was Maggie Doyne? What did I want to do with my life? Was I doing all of these things? because of an expectation or was I doing it because of me and what I wanted in my own heart? And all of this sort of questioning at a really young age led me to take a gap year. And I began traveling the world in a backpack as all of my friends went off and packed up their dorm rooms to go to college. And that for me, I think was the big turning point in my life where I just said no to the norm and the expectation. And I really um, started kind of paving my own path. And for me, that happened through travel. I think that travel is one of the greatest gifts that young women can do for themselves. It just opens your eyes. It makes you realize in those teenage, young, informative years, how big the world is outside of yourself. And, um, Long story short, many thousands of miles of travel through a program, first with other kids and leaders in a structured sort of semester gap year program, then to a refugee camp in northeastern India, I began to meet Nepali refugee children um, who had all fled the civil war in Nepal. This was in the year 2005, right after I graduated, Um, and so in northeastern India, I started seeing the effects of of civil war and children having to flee their families. And that's sort of how the journey began, learning for the first time the true plight of orphan, abandoned, um, and children in really difficult circumstances in another region of the world. Um, So I really, in seeing orphanages and the way that children were living, I sort of became really passionate and just wanted to read and learn. And I took a trip to Nepal just because I had seen so many kids living under plastic and in these really desperate situations. And, you know, we all know that children and girls who are at risk end up, 
you know, being child trafficked or working in a factory that's unsafe or not getting opportunities to go to school. I was seeing all of those results and I wanted to get to the root of it. So I took a trip to Nepal and the famous story goes, um, it was just a moment. It was a flash. I was trekking through Nepal, trying to get to the source of what had happened. And I was crossing through a dry riverbed. And um, as I was looking at the dry riverbed, you could see this stunning and tragic image of hundreds of children breaking rocks. Um, And every time I crossed that dry riverbed, I would see this crazy, stark, like, image of these children breaking stones and they would do it all day, every day, cold, rain, shine. Um, and I, I came to know that the children were breaking rocks to sell them for like a dollar at the end of the day to be used in construction projects and paving of roads. And, um, I was really young. I was 19 and it was just a shocking image. It made me question everything that I had ever known and experienced. And I saw this one little girl, her name was Hema and she was a rock breaker. And the day that I stumbled upon her, she was in this ratty, tattered orange dress and she was sifting through garbage in search of food. And, um, she just looked at me and said, namaste Didi, which means hello, big sister. And I just knew in that moment that I, had to. It wasn't even an option. I really 100% needed to do something to change this little girl's life and the trajectory of her future. And that was the beginning of the journey of enrolling children and girls into school and then taking it a step further and creating and building my own children's home and becoming a mom to adopted orphan children. Um, So today, there's not a single child on that dry riverbed not a single one, breaking stone. They're all enrolled into our school, Coppola Valley. Um, and I am the mom to 50 children. <laughs> I'm only, I just turned 30. <laughs> it is such an incredible story. And, you know, for people who I've told the story to, I think they're probably saying, okay, Denise, we thought you told the story really well, but hearing it from Maggie, because I love telling your story, as you know, I get into the, and then when Maggie was 19 and um, and then I love when you took the bus and you got to the end of the road and that was the foothills of the Himalayas, right? Mm-hmm. So, but here's the thing, Maggie, I think there are a lot of young women that have these experiences. What do you think, obviously, was seeing the kids that, but what made you say, I'm going to, I, I, I'm going to make the difference. Was it one of the quotes that I love that you have that you've said is that when you looked up and you said, I'm embarrassed to be a part of the family, the human race that has allowed this to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think for me seeing that shocking image, I mean, imagine you're, you're, I was grown and raised in suburban New Jersey. So a shocking image is maybe you see a homeless person now and again and, but it feels removed. And yeah, maybe I was sheltered in the sense that I hadn't seen real true human suffering on this level. But yeah, I felt shame. I felt shock. I felt like, how have I gone my whole life without knowing that this was part of our existence? And I think I just saw myself in those children. It was this very, you could call it like a spiritual moment. 
I don't know that I really thought about it, but I just connected with HEMA and those kids. And I thought that could have easily been me had I not won the birth lottery. And I think in the end, I decided that it would be harder for me to have seen what I saw and not do anything about it than to actually just try, to try to make a difference. And I didn't set out with this big, overwhelming mission. I, I started just by enrolling him into school and it was like $7 for an admission fee and, you know, a uniform and a backpack and all the fun, cute things in the beginning that would support the six-year-old child of getting into school. And, um, and then it kind of grew and grew, but it really started for me with just that one little small step and things that were tangible that I knew I could do as an 18 or 19 year old. Um, so I think, I think that was it. Just knowing that I could do something. I didn't, I didn't know what, I didn't know that I would go on to buy property and all of those other things. And I didn't so let's know talk I would about that. Let's talk about buying the property because I love this story. So you decide you're going to build this children's home. Then what happens? I just love this story. Yeah. So, um, I think a lot of people, when they hear my story, assume I was a trust fund kid or I had a big college fund waiting for me. I, I really didn't. I had, I had nothing. I grew up from, um, you know, very little means. And I had $5,000 of babysitting money saved up. I had always loved kids. I started a little babysitting empire in New Jersey when I was 12 years old. And I found a piece of property for exactly $5,000, which of course I took as a sign that I was meant to buy this piece of property. And I mean, the backstory of all of this is that I hated orphanages. And I was like that 19 year old kid who was like, I can do it better. I can raise children in an environment where they're loved and safe and it's a family. Just the word orphanage alone, I, it bothered me. I hated it. Um, I've always co called Coppola Valley our family, our home, a children's home. So I had this vision of creating a children's home in the way that I wanted it to be. Um, and so I started with just that, my babysitting money, and literally dug holes in the ground and sketched up what I wanted the home to look like with a local community. And that's the beginning of my story. It really, truly was my babysitting money and my life savings. And you have, there's a great photo of you, <laughs> of you and a shovel digging the hole, to which Lewis always says when he sees that, Maggie just needs that picture. In, that, that picture for Lewis, like says a million words. Mm -hmm. And there you are with the shovel digging mm -hmm. in Nepal. Okay. So you have your $5,000 you buy a piece of property. So you're this 19-year-old from New Jersey buying property in Nepal. I'm sure that ha that's another story. What happened next? So then the money runs out. I, right. have, really? <laughs> really? I had nothing what left. A, what a thought. <laughs> I have nothing left. So literally the only thing I could do was dig that hole. And it, it is sort of a metaphor when you think of it is just that putting on, you know, one shovel after the other, one step after the other. And I have no resources now, but I'm going to dig these holes for the foundation. And But then you realize that I need a septic tank. And I need iron and I need cement. And um, you start to put that budget together. And that was when I think shit really got real. Because <laughs> <Literally, laughs> <and figuratively. laughs> of the septic tank. Right, uh, right. And, and so I, um, I came back home to New Jersey and I thought, well, truly, my thought process was I will babysit 
my way through building this home because that's what I knew. That was my only skill set that I had to make money. I, I decided that at this point to defer college again. So I had to have that talk with my parents. <laughs> and um, basically, I started babysitting, house sitting, dog sitting, everything under the sun that my little entrepreneurial spirit could do. Um, ultimately had a garage sale where I was getting everyone's junk from their garage and trying to sell it because I needed $2,200 by the end of the weekend to send off to buy the next, you know, truckload of cement. And yeah, it was just, it was that process of brick by brick, payment by payment, pure hustle, working 24 hours a day, reading every single book that I could on development and, NGOs and nonprofit works and projects that failed in the developing world versus projects that had been successful and why, what were those indicators and factors? And, um, yeah, long story short, that was when I started speaking at schools. I got some really good local press for my community in New Jersey, Morristown, Mendham, and, uh, people started to help me and I kind of think you were crazy at all. Yeah, because I was that <laughs> it's kid. it's so far away, right? I mean, it's not because you are crazy, but... Yeah, it, I think at that point, like, even just taking a gap year and a deferral from college when you're that kid is a big deal in where I grew up. I mean, my guidance counselor told me that I was making one of the biggest mistakes of my life just simply by deferring college. So then when I extended that gap year into a, another one and then another one and it kind of became this detour... Um, yeah, there were definitely people who were questioning it. There was also a lot of people, especially women. I think a lot of moms, mentors, teachers that I had had who were like, go for it. Go girl. That's my dream. I would have loved to do something like that. And I kind of really tried to focus and surround myself with those women and those people and who did believe in me. And I just was too busy working and, had this innocence about me, I think, at that age of, I can do anything. If I want to make this happen, I can do it. Look, you could you could literally watch the house and this home going up. So, Do you think if you beginning. were 30 at that time, you would have felt differently if you, if you were you your age now? No, you I absolutely think that it would not have happened if I was older because I think as we get older, we have more responsibility and you lose that childlike dreaming, that ambition, that feeling of I can do anything. I mean, in a lot of ways, it was great that I was young um, and there were difficulties because of that. But in other ways, I didn't have college debt. I didn't have pressure on me to like get a job right away because now I had the degree that I had sold my soul for. I didn't have a relationship that I was in. So part of that youth also gave me a great freedom. And I thought the worst that could happen is that this doesn't work. And I think my parents in the end also agreed. So yeah, I think the youth and that spirit of let's do this. I don't like orphanages. I'm going to build my own. Whoa, like take that. So I think, um, I love that. Take that. That is so you. I mean, that is so your spirit. It's like, take that. And what I love about you is that you don't look that girl. You don't, when, when you first meet you, you don't have that look of just take that. You have mm. this very sweet appearance and you are very sweet. Well, everyone says when they meet me, they're always like, you are not 
who I thought you were. And I'm always like, who did you think I was? And I find that either people think that I was raised in like a teepee in Africa, like, (laughs) I don't know, a missionary family, or they think that I'm like a trust fund kid, or they think that I'm Mother Teresa incarnate. I don't, it's like they, it's hard to put someone who does something different in a box. And, and yeah, I think what I like to tell people is that I'm I'm pretty real. You are very real. It doesn't get more. You know, people don't get more real. And that's what I love about you is that you are just so you. So let's go because there's another great story in this, the Cosmo Award story. Yeah. So Cosmo Girl, as you know, it's like girly magazine, and um, in the very beginning. I was struggling. I mean, every $5, $20 donation at this point, I had moved back to Nepal full time. I had taken in children. So now I have children under my custody and care who I'm falling in love with. And we're just like, how do we get electricity to our house? How do we have water? We're like in that desperation mode. So Cosmo Girl launches a campaign that says basically like we're looking for girls who are making a difference in their communities and in the world. And a friend of mine basically sent that to me and said, I'm going to throw your photo in and your little story of how you're building a children's home for Cosmo girl of the year. And I was like, yeah, okay. And then went back to like bathing my children and taking their lice out of their hair. I wasn't, I wasn't really. <laughs> and your own. Yeah. And, your own own. <laughs> and, um, Anyway, fast forward months later, Cosmo Girl magazine calls and they say, congratulations, you have been chosen and nominated as the Cosmo Girl of the year. Um, And we are going to whisk you away (laughs) for a Maybelline makeover because part of the part of the um, sort of reward was that you had to go get this makeover. Um, But it also came with $20,000 to build the second story of my children's home. And I was expanding and wanting to, you know, take in more kids and pay the food bill and dig a well. I had all of these goals and dreams and Cosmo Girl chose me as Cosmo Girl of the Year. And I ended up flying to New York City with, um, with Cosmo and Maybelline and getting a makeover. So that was kind of I don't know. I rolled my eyes at it at the beginning because I was just like, of course, like they want me to get a makeover. Like, look at these children dying. And but in the end, through that experience, I learned the power of media, the power of sharing my story. Yeah, the makeover was fine. I dealt with it. Um, I wish you could see her. She's like the makeup was over was fine. I had fake eyelashes on. I remember my eyes were watering. I can't even They wanted to dye my hair blonde. And, um, but as soon as that piece hit, our, our, my little blog, my website crashed. I got written in, um, letters from girls all over the United States. And I just realized how young women and girls are really starving for hope and for inspiration and to know that they can make a difference. We're all, it's, it's not that we don't care. It's just that we don't know how, how do we, we know about these problems. How do we start to solve them? And, and that's kind of how my story snowballed. So I am very thankful for Cosmo Girl. <laughs> and I love your story, though, because it is about starting with that one. It's not looking at it and saying, I'm going to put together a five-year business plan. It's looking at how do I help one girl. And I remember, because as you know, but I'll tell this for our listeners, I've written about you many times, and I'm talking to your mom 
about how she felt because I'm mom and, you know, how I don't know how I would feel if Allie just said, I'm going off to Nepal. I mean, now I'd be okay because she'd be going off to Nepal with you and that would be perfectly fine with me. But if, you know, it's in all seriousness of just going into this land where I may not hear from her for weeks, whatever. And I remember something your mom said was that when it first happened, she kind of grieved the loss of the daughter of the life she thought you would have, not the person, but the life she thought you would have. Because for all moms, right, we want our daughters to have the life we didn't have, a better life than ours. And it was hard to see for your mom at first that this life was better Mm -hmm. for you. But then as time went on, your mom was able then to see that this life truly was better for you. And so I think for parents that are listening, I I think that's really important that we remember that about our children, that the lives our children choose may not be the life we would choose. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. And we really have to embrace that and let our children be who they are because they can do great things just like you are in different ways, whatever, whatever it is that they want to do that's great in the world. And that can be fixing some of the most vexing problems. That could be creating something that's new in innovation or technology. But whatever it is, giving our children that freedom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's, so much, um, there's so much fear I've noticed around doing things that are off that beaten track. And yeah, like... <laughs> girls and women in my sort of age group, we came behind the generation of women who fought to go to college, to enter the workforce, to get, you know, to, to catch up and, and, and get there. So I think for my mom, when I was making that choice not to go, she was like, what? But this is, that's everything. That's such an opportunity for young women that we can do these things. And get this kind of level of higher education. So that was definitely part of her grieving process and the vision that she had worked so hard for, for me and for my sisters. So um, what I've learned through it is that education is not always, it doesn't have to be in that box. Um, We kind of define education as the destination, that diploma, that degree, and for me, I've just found that the best learning has always been experiential and finding mentors and reading that book that kind of teaches you something new. And I had to find that for myself because it wasn't that I didn't get an education. I've learned more <laughs> setting up this nonprofit and had to get more skills and, and surround myself with people who who have taught me the things that I know, my own professors, so to speak. So it's um, definitely learning that education isn't always how we define it as a society and as a culture. And fast forward, um, it's been 10 years and I just got an honorary PhD. I know, I bet it's so cool. (laughs) So tell us about that. It's from? It's from St. Bonaventure. Uh, They recognized, uh, they have a degree program in pedagogy, which is education. And um, I always had promised my mom throughout this whole process that I would go back. Don't worry, mom. I'll go back to college. Maybe next year. Maybe next year. Maybe next year. Um, don't but worry. I'll get a college degree. I'll, I'll do it. And so it was kind of like a little bit of affirmation and that, yeah, you can learn in a different way and, and be recognized for that and still get that piece of paper. It just might not look like what it looks like for other people. Right. And I think that's the really important part. But I have a question. Should I be calling you Dr. Doyne now? <laughs> Because that no. seems really strange. No, I don't actually even usually talk about <laughs> because it. Because you are forever Maggie. So that was the beginning. And so much. Let's go through the, 
you have you built the school with the local community for the primary school. It now has how many students? We're now up to about 400 kids, including my own, and we're going to be going up to 12th grade this year. So we're officially a nursery nursery kindergarten all the way through high school. And what and that, that is just remarkable. So tell me tell me what else what else are you building or have built? Let's get everybody up to date. On. Right. So the approach to our project is very community based, very organic, like. You start by having, I started by taking in and adopting kids, and then you realize they need a quality education. So we built a school, and we were enrolling kids into school who maybe had extended relatives but were orphaned and could live in their roots. Then attendance is down because kids are begging on the streets for food. You know, they need their primary needs met. Um, their human needs met before they can think about education. So you start a nutrition program. You start feeding the kids. Then um, the kids are getting sick because of dirty water and infectious diseases. So you start a medical clinic and you bring doctors in. You kind of round out your approach to address all of these multifaceted issues that are that occur in a really impoverished community. Then the children, you know, they're caregivers. I have 400 kids. A lot of them have single moms or aunts, and there's domestic violence and a lot of issues. So we started a women's center um, to empower the local women and train them and give them the skills that they needed to be better mothers, caregivers, more economically independent, and create more equality within the society. Um, Right now we're in the process of... Um, building a vocational center. Uh, There's an organic farm with all of our animals to make our project as sustainable as possible. Um, So that's part of our vocational program that the kids not only learn the math and the sciences and English and Nepali, but also, you know, really practical life skills like growing food and aquaponics and all of these um, other techniques. And we're building currently in the process of building a big uh, school campus, which is going to be one of the greenest schools in the entire world. Um, the first school that we built seven years ago was made out of bamboo. It was pretty temporary structure. So now I'm meeting with structural engineers and launching a capital campaign and learning the whole ins and outs of construction and architecture, and, and the, the project continues. But I think primarily my biggest my biggest uh, task right now. I have 26 teenagers, and um, we're kind of looking at age out and transition for my 15 to 18 year olds, and thinking about what their next steps are. And to bring it all full circle, now my kids are looking to go to college, <laughs> and uh, I just dropped my first You're daughter. Saying, no, go to the United States. Help them. They need help. <laughs> I came to Nepal and then you guys go to the United States and help them. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of, um, that's where I am today. This summer I dropped off my oldest and my first off at college in the Netherlands for a scholarship that she had It's just incredible. It's really, it's, so I I want to go back to the step when you were on the stage at the Forbes summit Mm -hmm. and you were speaking and I don't remember the exact words, but you looked out and Warren Buffett was in the very front and you looked, I think, directly at him when you had said something like, when you're a grandparent, mm-hmm. you want your grandchildren to wonder what the word poverty means or ever meant. And you looked at him, and I remember you pointing your finger and saying, because you and me and everyone, we're going to make that change. Mm-hmm. What gave you, and, and that, I mean, that was so moving, but what gave you the courage 
to be able to say, I mean, this is this is an intimidating room, right? I mean, I spoke before you in the morning, and I got on stage, and I felt my hand shaking. It was intimidating. <laughs> you look out, and you see Warren Buffett and Oprah Winfrey. It's pretty intimidating. Yeah, I think I was trying to get to, if we can't believe it, and dream it, it can't happen. So if we could get to a place where we really truly believe that we could be the generation that ended these extreme injustices, poverty, violence that's occurring in our world today, if we can believe it, then I really think that we can do it. And maybe I'm idealistic, but I really truly believe that it's achievable because of the work I do. I've seen the the this stuff is not that complicated. These problems, caring for children, loving them, giving them their most basic needs. And I think when we're alive and on the planet, and when I was looking out into the audience, I wanted to say to them, what do we want our history to be? Do we want to be sitting with our grandchildren and still be talking about the fact that children are hungry, starving, and dying? Really? Like, or are we going to put a stop to this and say, this was the era that we defeated it? Like, really, how do we want to define our legacy and our history here? Because we have an opportunity and there are choices that we make every single day about how to care for others and, you know, what we, how we want to define our culture and our priorities. And I just really wanted to urge everyone in that room. And I still, that's why I speak. I hated getting up there. I was shaking. I didn't eat. I'm pretty sure I threw up before I got up. I mean, imagine. Well, you I was were in speaking. the hospital the day before. I mean, there's another story in this story. But yeah. It was, yeah, jet lag. I mean, flying from Nepal. It was, um, but we really do have to believe that we can do this, that we can join hands. And it's not about moving to Nepal and adopting 50 kids. I recognize that what I did was an extreme, but it's about all of us taking responsibility and being a part of the change and creating peace on our world. And there's so much distraction. There are so many ways that we've, there's so much BS in front of us that we seem to forget the reason why we're here. And I like to think that I can serve as that reminder. I don't want to be the one that gets up on stage and is like, guess what? While we're all drinking our lattes, there's mm-hmm. children starving. I never want to be that right. person. And you're not. And I'm not. I really just want to say, you guys, we got this. We can do this. Come on. Like, I and want you can to still have your course. latte. <laughs> yeah. You still have your latte. Yeah, exactly. Still have your latte. And but let's let's wake up and and really do this because we can and it's totally possible and i believe that i still do and over the years so it's been 10 years now mm-hmm. you've had a lot of highs and you've had a lot of lows and you've had some devastating lows and we'll get to, but let's talk about the highs for a second you were cnn hero of the year mm-hmm. last year the dalai lama mm-hmm. came to visit let's give some other highs in here you got your phd <laughs> your kids obviously that's a high i mean that's what you that's what you live for um what other highs in, in, in the last 10 years when you go through and you say, I think we've touched on some of them, but anything we missed that? Um, no, I think for me it was, it's been, you know, you start on a $5,000 babysitting money investment and today we're operating on almost $2 million and creating a lot of programming and a lot of change. And we've had a lot of people who have stepped up and just believed in our work and, Um, the recognition is part of that, that comes with grant money and people saying, here, take this, keep going, keep doing, keep growing. Um, and, and yeah, obviously the kids 
just the kids and the change that they're starting to create and the childhood that they've had and our family together. It's always the most rewarding part about it is our love for each other and watching them like go off and go to school. It's so cool. I'm really, yeah, there's been unbelievable highs, unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And then last year, this is a hard subject and just looking at your eyes, it's hard for me to bring up, but it's part of, of your story. So can you just, I want you to tell whatever you want to tell about Ravi. Mm-hmm. I don't want to take you into a place that you don't want to go, but I think it's a part of your story that if you're willing to share whatever part. Yeah, I um, when I was, I guess, well, if ever anyone who knows the story knows that I have a youngest son and he, he was my everything. I took him in when he was two months old. His, I named him Ravi, which means light. And, um, he, he was a starvation case. Um, he came to me really just on the verge of, of death. Um, he had lost his mother really tragically and his father and, um, sort of got handed over to me with his older sisters and, uh, was this wildly um, crazy love story and success story. He spent months in the NICU. I think he was down to just three and a half, four pounds because of starvation. And, um, yeah, I basically loved him and nurtured him and adopted him and, and took him in. And um, he, he, was pre- he was precious. You brought him here Oh, the most years ago. The beautiful angel baby that you've ever seen just such everyone was cheering for him and advocating him advocating for him and the two of us were inseparable I mean we slept and slept together I fed him I mean we'd been in and out of the hospital for two years and um this past December right after CNN Heroes he died tragically um just in an accident at our house and um yeah, talk about lows. It was just this year has been, it was blackout, like completely the most tragic, awful, most horrific. I mean, I was, I was right there when it happened and holding him and realizing that he was gone. It's just, it's, it was horrible. And, um, yeah, just, he was, you know, he was my son and, there was so much love and he taught me so much. And, um, yeah, so this year has not been at all what I planned. You're at your, it was, I was literally at my highest high in my entire life. Things really could not have gotten much better. CNN heroes building the school of my dreams. Um, you know, just thriving children, healthy, loving children. And, and I lost him and, um, It's been the fight of my life, I'll tell you. Um, It's really been the fight of my life. And I haven't really done much this year. I haven't spoken. I haven't. (laughs) I know. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so, 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 um, I'm just honored that our friendship has brought us together, that you are sharing the the good parts of your story as well as the reality of the story. Because I think a lot of times when people hear your story, and it's great, and they do need to hear the great part of your story because you are making such great change, mm-hmm. and the kids are going to make great change. It just doesn't stop with you. I mean, these kids are then going to go on, and they're going to do it, and it just keeps going forward. But it's not easy. I mean, you've had other kids die that weren't your kids, but mm-hmm. I remember one time um, 
it was right after I wrote about this. It was right after the Forbes Summit. And you get back to Nepal, so you're at this high again, right? You're getting a standing ovation. And in those days, that was a big high. Mm-hmm. For you. Not the same as the Dalai Lama, but having Warren Buffett give you a standing <laughs> ovation is okay. And you get back to Nepal, and you're in the emergency room with a young girl who, um, I guess, domestic violence for and you're in there and you're helping her. And so you go from from reality to a different reality. Yeah. And then I remember the time you wrote about in your blog about you were walking to school one day and there was a young girl that had not one of your children, but someone in the school um, that had hung herself, that had died. So this is not this is not easy. This is oh, not yeah. easy. And I think a lot of times when we hear the great story, which it is, people think that. I think they think it's hard work, but not the emotional that you go through. And the stories you've told about the kids that apply to be able to come to whether it's school or the kids being dropped off at your doorstep to be part of your family and your home, and you just can't take them all. Mm -hmm. And how stressful that is for you because you want to take them all. So I think that a lot of times we hear the great story, which it is a great story, not realizing the impact this takes on you. Um, And I want to honor that. And I'm I'm so emotional about this because I think you, I really do want to honor that. I couldn't do it, Maggie. Really, I couldn't. I couldn't. I'm going to tell you, when Allie was with you, she texted me. It was like 3 o'clock in the morning, your time. And it's like 7 o'clock here, 7 p.m. And she's like, Mom, there is like a four-inch flying cockroach in my room. (laughs) I said, okay, like what you're going to do is, I'm not sure you're supposed to kill cockroaches there. I don't know what, I'm not sure something bad will happen to you if you kill it. But go find a garbage can and see if you can find for it and I'll stay on the phone with you so we're texting and I'm like text me and I'm saying put on a hoodie and put on a pair of long pants and like go after this is like Jurassic Park right go after the cockroach to which Allie says I don't understand how there could be a four inch flying cockroach in here I have seven lizards in my room wouldn't one of them have eaten and I'm like you have what in your room let's see at that point I would have been like on the next plane home Allie left New York if she saw a tiny little spider in her room, she would have been like, Mom, Mom, there's a spider in my room, right? It could have been like the size of a pinhead. But when she goes into Paul and is with you and the kids, it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. The four-inch, I mean, she wanted to get rid of the four-inch cockroach. <laughs> but that didn't send her home by any means. What sent her home was she couldn't get her visa renewed. Um, so it's hard. And that's it's, the point It's hard that I want to make is that... And when, when you lost Ravi, I just remember every day, I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to bother you. I sent you an email. I never expected a response because that wasn't what I was sending it for. So all I could do is like stay in touch with, I didn't want to call your board members because I didn't want to infringe on any of your privacy or whatever. And it was so, you felt, I felt so helpless that I wanted to help you, but didn't know what to do. And I would just read Facebook and look at Twitter every single morning. You can ask Lewis, I would wake up and the first thing I would do is go there. And I would be like, how is Maggie? I need to know how Maggie Mm -hmm. is. I need to know how Maggie is. And I can remember Mike Perlis, the CEO of Forbes saying, you know, if there's anything we can do to help Maggie, when I told him the story, we know people in Nepal, if there's anything we can do. And I think, and I share that Maggie, because you have built People love you, and there's not one of us who knows you who wouldn't do anything in the world for you, and I I want you to know that. And 
now we're going to go, we're going to stop crying here and get to a happy part because you came in earlier with a guy named Jeremy. So let's tell this story. So you never thought you could love again after losing Ravi and you loved your kids, but even that was hard for you. Yeah. I mean, lose, I died. I really, I died that day. I, um, you just think you could never recover, right? You just, you don't ever recover from something like this. And it made me question everything. It made me question what I believed in. It made me question life. I mean, it was, it was just the dark ages. I mean, there was, I went into a blackout and I really did not come out. Um, like the worst, deepest, darkest depression. And, um, yeah, just horrific, horrific, horrible nightmare. And I had to come back to New Jersey with my mom, my sister, and really just could not get out of bed. Just couldn't, couldn't move out of fetal position. I mean, literally from there to laying on the bathroom floor, it was, it was a really dark time. And, um, thank goodness for a support network. I mean, uh, if I had been a mom in the remote Himalayas, I would have been up the next day having to get firewood and carry water from the spring and take care of the animals. There would have been no time to grieve, but I really did. I had to go through my grieving process, which I realized now was a luxury. Um, I mean, I had access to the best therapy and the best healing, um, everything, everything to get through this. And but ultimately, I think three months in, I still could not get out of bed. And um, my dear, dear friends, a few of them, because of CNN Heroes happening, the Annenberg Foundation had stepped up to offer an alchemy training that they do. And it's this amazing training. And they train nonprofits because of the growth that CNN Heroes brings. So me and my director of operations and one of my board members – Basically, um, we're supposed to fly out to L.A., to California, and I did not think I could get on that plane. Really, like, this was such a big deal for a woman that had traveled all over the world. The thought of going to an airport without that child was just awful. But I get on the plane, and I... uh, I ended up getting out to this training and a car service was there to pick me up and I end up just randomly by chance um, at this place with one of my board members at like a bar because they had just been finishing up a project and long story short, I meet up with Jeremy and um, he's now my boyfriend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just met him. And, and I, the look um, in your eyes and both of your eyes, I, I just, it's, it's really special. It's yeah, very special. It's, um, it really I is. totally and completely fell in love in the most unexpected way. And, um, yeah, I fell in love with this man and, and he fell in love with you. That's very apparent when you <laughs> and see the, the kids two of you together. He fell in love with the kids, which I think was important. I mean, you can imagine when you're 29 and living in Nepal, the dating prospects are not that great. I mean, it's really? a country with, with a 50 range. kids, <laughs> 50 really? kids, Nepal, um, remote Nepal and 50 kids a huge, you know, just working. And it's a country that believes in arranged marriage. So I wasn't going to get an arranged marriage. I just thought maybe I would be alone for a while. Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, So yeah, it was the most unexpected surprise. And I really felt 
Like I'm not a very religious person and this made me question a lot, even just spirituality wise, but I really truly felt like I was being looked after and that he was somehow sent not to make things better, but to just be there. And he was, he's been there ever since we met that weekend. I made it through the training and he asked me to go out to Joshua tree with him. And we climbed those beautiful rock formations and, and we've been together ever since it's been, um, almost a year and he's come to Nepal and, um, and his mother's come to Nepal. His mom came. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we're just so, and I want to make this point because something Jeremy said earlier when he was here, when you had said, I've been blessed and he had said, so has he, right? (laughs) So it's not just that you, that he came in to help you, not even help, but looking at it, that you're blessed that he came to you at this point in your life. You came into his life Mm-hmm. in a different way, at a different point in his life when he needed you as much as you need him. And that's, I think, what's, you know, your story is as beautiful as you are as a person, Maggie. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it doesn't get more real. It doesn't get, <laughs> and I could, I could talk with you forever and I know you need to go. Um, and so I want to be respectful of that. Is there anything that you want to tell the listeners that you want them to know before we go, in addition to where we can find you? But Something, yeah. something else that you just want everybody to leave with a message, anything? Um, I think what I've learned this year and just telling that story is even when it feels like there's no hope and you are at your rock bottom and everything in the world feels like it's just unbearable, there is always hope and there's always love and love has the power to heal you and it may not be... Um, you know, it may not be in the same form for everyone. It, it looks different, but I've just had to learn that again and again, um, that you just keep going. You just keep trying. You just put one foot in front of the other, keep loving. And to forgive yourself, I think not mm-hmm. about, about it's okay that you can't do what you used to do during this period of time, forgiveness, right? So not thinking that I still have to be the Maggie that I was a year ago and that I have to be speaking and I have to be doing this and I have to be doing this for my organization, that it's okay to say, I need to heal and I need to take care of me. Oh, yeah. I, I, um, yeah, I had to do that in a big way. I had to literally step off the face of the earth for a little while and I'm coming back, you know, little by little. This has been a year of just inner reflection and rising again and getting back to those beautiful kids because I still have them. And yes. And they and you write love letters to them. So for everyone to go to your website, <laughs> which is blinknow.org, right? So mm-hmm. B-L-I-N-K-N-O-W dot org. Because as Maggie says, in the blink of an eye, I'll let you say that you're saying in the blink of an eye. <laughs> we can change the world. And we can. And when you go to Maggie's mm-hmm. site, when you go to Blink Now, you'll see these beautiful love letters that Maggie has written to all of her children in the past year as well as you'll see blogs of Maggie's life story over the years of what it's like being in Nepal. Maggie, I I love you. I really love you. I love you too. And for this, we are saying goodbye for now. <laughs> Thank you so much for having Thank me. Thank you. Thank you so much. I just have to give you a big hug. <laughs> okay, so I have to move over from the mic because I have to give her a big, big hug. <laughs> So just like that night in 2012, I have gone through so many emotions 
in this podcast with Maggie. We've laughed, we've cried, and there is only one Maggie doing. But that's true for all of us. There's only one of us, and each one of us, we're all so unique. There's a quote from Maggie that I love, and it goes like this. Change is more than a hill. It's a Himalayan mountain. It's slow. It takes time. It takes putting one foot in front of the other. And sometimes you fall. Sometimes you don't feel like you're even moving at all. And sometimes you think you're at the top, but you're not. And sometimes you get lost. Sometimes you just want to give up. But at some point, you stop, look back, and see where you came from. Thank you for joining us today. And to make sure you're getting Mentoring Moments the moment it's live, every Wednesday, please subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review. And check out my show notes on Forbes.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And you can find me easily. I'm always on Twitter, at Denise Rastari. And here's a little something extra for this holiday season. I know it's hard to believe, but the holidays are almost here. And that means shopping, and that means I'll be doing a lot of clicking on Amazon. To be specific, on my Mentoring Moments Amazon banner on podcastone.com. And I hope you'll join me. When you buy stuff through my Amazon banner, a percentage of the purchase goes directly to support the podcast at no extra cost to you. So here's how you do it. Go to Podcast One, click on Killer Deals link, click on Mentoring Moments logo, and you're there. And then you can bookmark the link for future Amazon purchases. So until next week, keep sharing your stories because your stories matter. Download new episodes of Mentoring Moments every Wednesday at podcastone.com, forbes.com, the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. It's time to break the cycle of waste and mess. Time to stop accepting that the way things have been done are the way they should be done. Control-Alt-Delete everything you thought you knew about how to period. We're flipping the script. We're throwing out the book. We're challenging the period status quo. The Diva Cup is eco-friendly, reusable, and offers up to 12 hours leak-free protection. So what are you waiting for? Join the inner revolution with the Diva Cup. The Diva Cup is used for menstrual flow only. Always read and follow the user guide. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, They are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower... It does not appear to be following, following the rule of law. It is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.